turn our attention once again to 1 Corinthians 13. So take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We will again be in verses 8 through 13. Paul has sandwiched in between two chapters dealing with gifts in the church, how the church should function according to giftedness. And uh, chapter 12 deals with the imagery of the church as a body and there's unity yet diversity. Chapter 14 is going to go on and give a bit more information on some of these more uh, miraculous sign gifts. Kind of right there in the middle, he makes sure that the folks in Corinth understand that the proper manner in which gifts are exercised is love. and That without love, it doesn't matter how good your giftedness is, it doesn't matter how efficient you are at your gift, how profound you are at your gift. In verses 1 through 3, Paul defends, uh, he, uh, he demands love from us, reminding us how important it is. In verses 4 through 8, he defines love for us. And then now in 8 through 13, he is defending what he has said thus far. And that is again kind of exalting the supremacy and primacy of love. So, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith. Hope, love, these three, the greatest of these is love. I I did a a quick little search on something that I found interesting, though this kind of statistic, I guess you'd say, it doesn't always suggest something. I think in this case it is telling, and I wanted to find out how many times key words in the Bible were used. In particular, virtues. Words like faith, belief, hope, forgiveness. These were just some that I looked up. And compare them to love. The word faith is used 250 times. Forgiveness is only used 56 times. Grace is mentioned 170 times. Believe is used 145 times. Hope is used 130 times. Love is found 320 times in the Bible. Significantly more than any of those other virtues. Hope, trust, believe, forgive. Interestingly enough, there's another word that's found way more than love, and that's the word sin. Sin is found 450 times in the Bible, which I think is also quite telling. That on the one hand, you have all these references to sin, and on the other hand, you have all of these references to love. I find this interesting because on one level, it seems like love should be a no-brainer, right? It seems like one of those qualities 
that should require little motivation on our part. It seems like it should be one of those priorities in life. Like, like one of those just certain steadfast responsibilities. You know, those responsibilities that, that we don't think anybody should need to remind us of. And clearly God doesn't think of love that way. The Bible, it's, it's not necessarily on every page, but it's close. It's almost like on every page of the Bible, God recognizes He needs to keep before us the primacy of love. Even a chapter like 1 Corinthians 13, there's very few topics in the Bible, aside from the gospel itself, that receives such extensive explanation. In fact, I don't know of another theological term in the Bible that has as specific and clear a definition in the Bible as love. I don't know of any other topic. Justification, redemption, atonement. I mean, you think of these weighty, deep concepts. I can't think of another term that has 16 points of definition. But God gives that to us for love. That there's, there's the no, no doubt. We can't wiggle out of it. We can't escape it. The, the, the clarity of the text comes shining through. And again, it's not just that he defines it. We have this entire chapter where Paul says, love matters the most. Then he defines it. Then he comes back and says, and by the way, love matters the most. And, he, and he's, it's a text we started looking at last week, beginning in verse 8, where that first phrase of verse 8 is really like a transition. It finishes up the description of love but then transitions into this final part of, of, of again, Paul defending what, what is the absolute, essential, primary, supreme nature of love. And it fits perfectly with his point. Paul is trying to get these folks in Corinth to recognize they should not be impressed with their gifts. Gifts were given to them by God. They didn't generate it. They didn't create it. It wasn't because they were super special or super spiritual or because they had more money or more intelligence or more education or more charisma. God, just in His grace, decided to give them the gifts that they have. And yet they were using that as a way to rank themselves. And, and those that were the haves let the have-nots know that they were the haves. And those that were the have-nots were trying to do everything they could to slip into the haves group. And so, so they were ranking each other based on these gifts, and they were almost lording it over one another. So Paul makes sure that the folks know what matters most is not the expression of the gift itself, but the manner in which the gift is expressed. And if the gift is not expressed in love, then it has no effect it is, it is, it is un, uh, un, unworthy of being credited to God and, and to His Holy Spirit. And so Paul defends this, I think, in verses 8 through 13 by showing the primacy of love in regard to important relationships it has with issues of Christian living. And so last week we started the first one, and that is the relationship of love to gifts. And so Paul begins this defense by saying, love never fails, and then he launches right into, but whether there is prophecy, it will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. 
And he's clearly pitting then these sign gifts. These were the miraculous gifts. These were the, these were the jazzy gifts, right? Snazzy gifts. The ones that everybody wanted. The ones that got all the accolades. That got your name at the top of the bill, so to speak. And so, so, so Paul is reminding them of all that you think you've got in these gifts. Love is the thing that never fails. At some point, you're not going to need any of these gifts anymore. At some point, you're not going to need prophecy, you're not going to need tongues, and you're not going to need knowledge. Which is interesting, by the way, all three of these gifts deal directly with the means by which the revelation of God was communicated to the church. And so he picks these up. In other words, these these were publicly done. It wasn't like the gift of service or the gift of helps or the gift of mercy. These, These were the public gifts that involved the, the teaching and proclamation, then application of the Word. And so Paul says, these things are going are to fall away. And if you remember from last week, we you know, made the point that when it says that prophecy will fail, that doesn't mean it, it'll fail to come true, that means it'll fall off. Like, like a leaf falling off of a tree, the, a petal of a flower falling off when it dies. It will come to an end. That's all he means by saying this. And then notice how how then in verse 9, he then says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, and that which is in part will be done away. So so not only has Paul kind of made this initial statement, prophecies will cease, uh, tongues will cease. Actually, he says prophecies will fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish. And then verse 9, he picks up on prophecy and knowledge again. And he said, so we, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when that which is perfect comes, these, prophecy and knowledge, will no longer be. Now, all of this that I'm saying is setting up something important. I, I teased it out last week a little bit, and we're going we're gonna to dig into it a little bit more tonight. And that is, what is the nature of these sign gifts for today? Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Now let me reiterate something from last week. This is not Paul's primary point. His primary point is not to communicate uh, that's th- these issues, though I think he does go on to talk more about it in chapter 14. Instead, Paul is using these gifts as an illustration Love is what is supreme. Love matters more than the gifts that you have. And, 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 and to prove that, he says, these gifts will fall away. Love will abide forever. There'll never be a time when there is not love. There'll be a time when there's not prophecy. There'll be a time when there's not knowledge. There'll be a time when there's not tongues. But I think in doing so, he does give me, anyway, an indication that the nature of these sign gifts were unique for the New Testament period. And that in fact, these gifts don't function today. One of them doesn't function at all. I think two of them function in what he says, in part. And I'll explain that in in just a moment. But you can already tell from just reading this text, Paul identifies knowledge and prophecy, sets them apart from tongues. In verse 8 he said, prophecy will fail. Knowledge will vanish away. Tongues will cease. He mentioned all three of them. Verse 9, he only mentions two of them. 
We know in part and we prophesy in part. And that knowledge and prophecy, these gifts will continue in some form, in part, until that which is perfect comes. What does he mean by that which is perfect? Some would say that that which is perfect is a reference to the completion of the Bible. Right? In other words, the completion of the, of the canon. When, this, when the Bible is complete, uh, then that, that, is, that is the perfect. And, and indeed, that's, that's, a, that's a viable interpretation. A way to say, yes, so knowledge, prophecy, and tongues, they no longer function in the church because now we have the Bible. Now, on one level, that I, would, I do agree with that. The, the only issue I have is there's nothing in the text itself or anything we ever have in the New Testament that suggests that a reference to the perfect is to the canon of Scripture. Here's what I think he's saying. I think perfect is a reference to final redemption. The very end. I, I think that's a reference to when all is said and done and, and, and we, we now are perfected, we receive the fullness of our redemption the, the fullness of our adoption in Christ uh, at the very end of time. I think that's what he's referring to as the perfect. And at that moment, knowledge and prophecy are no longer needed at all. In other words, when you're in heaven, let's, we'll just use that as the simplest way to describe this. When we're in heaven and we have perfect minds, perfect bodies, right? Everything about us is perfect. Are you going to need prophecy? No. Are you going to need knowledge of any kind? No. Are you going to have some snarky preacher yelling at you three days a week? No. Oh, that came out quick, Jim. Did you hear that? Jim came out with that quick. I mean, that was fast. Like, almost, he was raising a hand. I mean, he was almost raising a hand at how excited he is by that. Yeah, so the day's going to come when we don't need these things, right? We don't need prophecy. Now, Prophecy and knowledge are unique gifts. And notice how Paul says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. In the midst of the New Testament period, before the completion of the Bible, prophecy and knowledge function differently. There were those who had the prophetic gift in that they gave direct revelation from God. Paul had the prophetic gift. Peter had the prophetic gift. The apostles had the prophetic gift. They were communicating divine revelation. Jesus made the apostles this promise, did He not? He said, the Spirit's going to come and He's going to lead you into all knowledge. You will speak. You won't have to remember anything I've told you. He's going to bring it to your mind. That, by the way, I think is a unique promise given to the apostles. All right? You and I should still memorize Scripture, all right? We should still try and remember things, okay? We should still try and know the Spirit's not necessarily going to magically bring it to our minds, though He could. But they had a unique gift of prophecy, and the gift of knowledge may have also included uh, some kind of divine communication. Now, I think that gift still functions in part. Here's how. I think prophecy at its most fundamental, is the gift of bold proclamation of God's revealed truth. I think knowledge is discernment as to how that message is brought to bear on Christian living. So I would say those who have the gift of teaching, preaching, would very often then have the gift of prophecy and knowledge, though it is in 
part. So, there's still the need in the church for bold proclamation of the Word. I just don't need divine revelation new anymore, right? I now need the Word that's already been revealed. I need it to be boldly and clearly proclaimed. I need it to be carefully and deeply taught and exegeted and exposited to me. I need it to be brought to bear on my life. I need somebody to, you know, to help me see the way these texts of Scripture then fuel and feed me in my Christian walk. So I, I would say that is the manner in which these gifts operate. And I would say that's why Paul has singled them out. Because again, you'll notice in all of that, he did not include tongues. You say, so, uh, well, well, preacher, maybe that's just a literary thing. I mean, maybe it's just for the sake of, you know, he used the first one and the last one, and he's assuming the middle in there. I mean, because he, he, does, he does say in verse 8, whether they are prophecies, they will fail. Whether they are tongues, they will cease. Whether there's knowledge, it will vanish away. All right, so let's stick there on verse 8 for just a minute. And let, can I apologize to you ahead of time for the grammar that's coming your way? All right? But you all come on Wednesday nights. I don't know what else you're going to, what you expect. This is what happens. Some of you may not show back up, all right? This is what happens, all right? We get a little bit deeper, uh, a little bit more technical on Wednesday nights. Because when, when Paul speaks of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, he doesn't use the same verb in all three of those phrases. When he says prophecies will fail, and then the third phrase, knowledge will vanish, those are both the same verbs. I don't know why translators translate them differently, but they're, it's, it's the same verb. And it is the verb that means then to fall away, all right? Uh, to come to an end, to cease. Both of these verbs, I told you we're going to get into it, here you go. Both of these verbs are in what are called the passive voice. That's thrilling, isn't it, right? In the passive voice. You know what a passive voice is? That means something that has been done to you, right? Something that has been done to you. All right, so when he says prophecies will vanish and knowledge will vanish, he's saying at some point, something will bring these things to an end. What is that thing? The perfect. Verse 9. The perfect. All right? So when all this is said and done, all right, when Jesus comes back, when it's all of that, then this, the knowledge, prophecy, and all the gifts for that matter, will stop. They will cease at that point. Tongues, verse 8 whether there are tongues, they will cease. That's a different verb. It's a different verb. Not only is it a different verb, it's in a different voice. It's not passive. This is really about to get exciting. It's the middle voice. You want me to get even more exciting? That means it's reflexive. And you all are thinking, I don't have any idea what that means. What is that? What are you talking about? So it has good reflexes? Is that what you're getting at? No. When something's reflexive, it's doing something to itself, right? I brush my teeth, okay? Doing something to myself. When it says tongues will cease, the word cease means to run out. When it's in all of this grammatical form, and thank you for sticking with me on that, 
This entire grammatical form is a way of saying this. Tongues will run out on its own. Think of it like a battery. A battery that eventually runs dead. I don't mean to say that tongues will be dead necessarily. It's not a negative concept. But when Paul says tongues will cease, a literal way of rendering this is tongues will of its own run its course. It'll run out. It'll die off. Another way that we could even state that is tongues of its own will no longer be necessary. Prophecy and knowledge, something will be done to it so that it ceases. Tongues will just kind of stop. I think that language describes exactly what happens to tongues. Now, we will get more into this, by the way, in chapter 14. But this is one of the reasons why I believe the gift of tongues, and really, you know what I should say? The gift of speaking in language is not your own, because that is the reference. The gift of speaking in language is not your own, has come to an end. All right? So I don't think this gift is still in operation in the church. And let me give you some reasons why. So you've, you've got this already in your notes. There won't be blanks to fill in for this. But just let me show you then how I think the verb that's used here in verse 8 shows itself in what has happened with the rest of tongues. First, I think it's important to note that the gift of tongues only appears four times in the book of Acts. In other words, for 26 chapters, that's relatively rare. You may listen to some and it sounds like everybody everywhere in the book of Acts is speaking in tongues. It's not so. We don't have a reference to tongues everywhere the church starts. Quite frankly, it does not show up that often. It seems to be a rather rare manifestation, though it does happen in some explosive and profound ways in the book of Acts. They are always in regard to the establishment of the church. In other words, they're, they're like evangelistic crusades. They, they are, they are uh, all, uh, all, the, all the examples of this happen when there is this proclamation of the gospel in such a way that a lot of people hear the gospel, repent, and believe. Pentecost being the best example of this. So, so this, this doesn't happen, it's not like it's happening in every chapter in the book. Uh, what, what's interesting then, you read the rest of the New Testament. If you were to date all the letters of the New Testament, guess when the last reference to tongues shows up? 1 Corinthians 14 and A.D. 55. Think about that. A.D. 55. Put that into context. Revelation is written in 95 A.D. All right? So the book of Revelation, the end of the completion of the Bible, happens some 40 years after Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. But you read the letters after the letter to the church at Corinth. You read these letters and you find nothing about tongues. Granted, I know that is an argument from silence. Recognize that may be tricky. Nonetheless, I do find it interesting that by the time, say, you get to First and Second Timothy or Titus, three letters written to pastors, written to pastors serving in churches, telling them how they should manage themselves, manage leadership, manage their preaching, manage the, the way the Word is taught. 
there is ample warning about false teaching and misleading signs and wonders. But Paul never once tells Timothy what to do with speaking in tongues. The whole, the whole text on the qualifications for elders and deacons, nothing in there talking about tongues. There's plenty of references, though, to other gifts in these letters. But you find nothing about this. So I think you already find uh, the tongues have run their course. I think tongues have run their course before you get to the end of the New Testament time period. I think tongues have run their course before you get to 60 AD. I think they served a unique purpose for that particular period of time. And then I think they ceased. Let me give you another reason why I think this. The early church fathers, so think um, old dudes with beards who had really odd Greek names, mostly, okay? Like in the hundreds and beyond. My guess is they don't rank among your favorite authors in Christian history. They probably should, all right? But we don't, we don't really read them. Uh, but these, these were pastors of churches, some of whom were burned at the stake, all right? These were pastors of churches, uh, the second generation, say after Timothy Titus, so I guess third, the next generation of pastors, early church fathers. They never say anything about tongues. With one exception. About a hundred years after the time of the New Testament, a guy named Montanus shows up, claiming to be able to have a mystical, ecstatic experiences and speaking in other tongues. Do you know what the early church did? Condemned him as a heretic. Categorically condemned him as a heretic. So the only time it shows up is like as an aberration. And, and, and then if you go on further uh, to another one, if we go on to letter C there, and again it's, it's there in your notes, for 1,800 years worth of ch- church history then, there's almost nothing about tongues. There's almost nothing about tongues. And in fact, the real explosion in this doctrine doesn't happen until the 20th century, early 20th century. Do you know what's happening at the same time? You have a radical rise in biblical illiteracy. You also have a radical rise in questioning the authority, truthfulness of Scripture. And you have a group of of Christians who then start seeking mystical, experiential elements of their relationship with Jesus. In other words, they kind of go out of the boundaries established by Scripture. And it's in this moment then that all of a sudden we have, we supposedly have these tongues, which by the way, I say there's references to tongues. You should know there's never been an, an on record, a recorded, a recorded instance. And when I, when I say recorded, I mean literally, like captured on tape. A recorded instance where somebody claiming to speak in tongues was actually speaking a language. It's never happened. It's never happened. It's not happening now. Do you think there are any people being recorded on video now? Oh, we're being recorded all the time, right? You would think if this were happening, if this were so prevalent, if these were actual languages, we'd get one on tape. But we haven't yet. Again, I know that all this, all this argumentation, so to speak, is not necessarily 
uh, evidence, like from Scripture itself. But I, to me, it, it, it is telling. It is telling uh, that uh, this gift of tongues, uh, I think, has been a distraction in the church. I think it's led to some devastating doctrine. I think it's led to some devastating doctrine. Uh, and so I, I find it interesting that it, at this particular point in church history is when we find struggles with this. Uh, but really in church history, it's, it's not really been uh, a subject of concern. So I, I would, again, lay, lay my claim here. Uh, tongues as a gift has ceased. It ran its course. It fulfilled its obligation, and like a battery, it's died out. Now, let me say something. Uh, Understand, I think I put this on your notes. I I still believe (laughs) that the Holy Spirit does miraculous things. See, this is often what a guy like me may get tagged with. When I say, well, I don't think these sign gifts operate like they did in the New Testament. Oh, so you don't think God does miracles. We can do better than that, right? We can argue better than that, right? I mean, when I say argue, we can discuss things better than that. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. I think, I think miracles happen all the time. In fact, for every person that's in here that's a believer in Jesus Christ, the most incredible miracle happened to you when God in His grace saved you in Jesus Christ. Absolutely, miracles happen. Do people, do people all of a sudden get physically healed for with no explanation? Sure they do. Yes. We all could give stories, Right? Yes, they do. Do we all hear stories of these incredible circumstances where, where, where we hear all of these events that either line up in just the right way so an outcome happens or all these events transpire so that, so that something terrible doesn't happen? Are, are these miraculous works? Sure they are. Sure, it happens all the time. Holy Spirit's doing miraculous things. Do I hold out the possibility that in deepest, darkest Africa... I could go and start reading in English and some tribesman could hear in his dialect? Perhaps. But it's not me with the gift of tongues. Right? It's, it's not somebody with the gift of healing getting it in their coat and slapping their audience with it. That's Benny Hinn, by the way. All right? In other words, that, you know, so walking up to somebody and popping them on the forehead. All right? You know what's going on now? You know what the big thing is now in African churches? People claim to have sicknesses. They come up and they get kicked in the stomach. I'm not kidding. This is the kind of thing that's happening. This is what I think happens when you unmoor yourself from Scripture and you allow these other things. And I think this is why it's so important that we very carefully understand the details of what the text is saying. And so, again, I, I think the idea here, I know we went, that's a bit of a, trail, you know, that we've gone on. It's not exactly what this text is here for, though I do think it speaks to the topic uh, and that you and I would do well then to, to appreciate. Uh, God had specific uses for these miraculous sign gifts, and they don't, though God still does the miraculous, uh, these gifts used to establish the church uh, are, are no longer gifts that people in the church possess. But again, as, as we stop tonight, you'll hold on to these notes. We'll uh, finish up in a couple of weeks. Um, because really, verses 11 through 13 are, are really critical as well. Um, in fact, verse 11 should be really convicting, I think. You can go, you can go read that. At least it convicts, it convicts me 
Uh, sometimes we like to think that we're, we're being mature when in fact we're often not. So we'll, we'll deal with that and what that says about love. But for now, I think you know, this Paul, Paul is, is just making sure the folks in Corinth appreciate you can do all these incredible things. They're just going to all die off. They're just going to all die off. And church, maybe we could take that even one step further. I mean, even just look beyond, say, the gift of prophecy or tongues. or We can get lost in the minutia and the details and all the grammar that I just went through. Think of any of your gifts of service. Think of, of anything you do quote-unquote, in the name of Christ. Anything I do in the name of Christ for the sake of His church, if that doesn't include love, then I'm a clanging symbol. You might as well be scratching your fingernails down a blackboard. That would be a lot more enjoyable. That's what he's getting at. It'd be a lot more enjoyable than to see somebody engage in so-called Christian service without love. Because what does that mean? You are engaging in Christian service for nothing more than your own ego. And few things, I think, would offend Christ more than that. Quite frankly, that is idolatry. Idolatry of what? Idolatry of me. I've made me the idol. And so let us evaluate then how we live, how we act, how we serve. Is it done in love? And if you wonder, well, I don't know if it's done in love or not. Well, then go back and read verses 4 through 8. <laughs> in other words, it's built in. There's not a whole lot of wrangling we need to do here. Is that describing then the nature of my service to my Lord and then to my brothers and sisters in Christ? All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us tonight. Grateful for the time to be with your people and... I'm just grateful for the fellowship that brothers and sisters in Christ do enjoy as we pray and as we are in your word. And Lord, now we submit ourselves to this word and pray that you by your spirit would continue to bring that to bear on our lives, that we might indeed live lives characterized by, by genuine Christ-like love. Thank you for these who've come out tonight. I thank you that they've uh, given of their time and wanted to be with your people. I pray they would know uh, your blessing upon them. I pray that they would know your wisdom and, and your guidance and your leading and that they would be aware of how you as a God of providence are at work in their lives. Again, Lord, I just pray that you'd use us all in a manner that is consistent with what you are doing in the world, bringing people to yourself in Christ Jesus, doing that which would bring you glory. May we commit ourselves to that task, giving ourselves fully to it, and that you would be honored and blessed by what we give to you. We pray that you gather your people back together again on the Lord's Day so that we can again join together heart, mind, as we glorify and honor you, our God and Savior. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.